Welcome back to the Moody Profcast. This podcast seeks to explore the intersection between theology and our culture by discussing various topics with the faculty of the Moody Bible Institute. Today, I would like to welcome our guest, Dr. Craig Hendrickson. Dr. Hendrickson, after retiring from an 11-year career in the Canadian Football League in 2001, spent 16 years in full-time ministry in Long Beach, California, Brooklyn, New York, and here in Chicago as well. His service in church settings included time as an assistant and lead pastor, as district leader in the Free Methodist Church, and he has also served as an adjunct professor for Fuller Theological Seminary and North Park University, and as a trainer and leadership partner with the Aero Leadership Program. His passion is equipping current and future leaders to engage in multicultural missional ministry, and his research interests center on bringing these distinct disciplines together. His dream is to see a network of leaders working towards spiritual transformation, racial healing, and economic justice in diverse urban communities across North America through multi-ethnic ministry. Dr. Hendrickson has a BA in sociology from the University of Minnesota, a Master of Divinity from Regent College, a Master of Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a PhD in intercultural studies from the Fuller Theological Seminary, focusing on missionary leadership and intercultural ministry. Dr. Hendrickson, thank you for coming on the show. How are you feeling today? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Feeling good. Yeah, excited to talk today. So, Dr. Hendrickson... How did you find yourself coming from a professional career in football to working in the intersection between theology, missiology, intercultural studies, and urban ministry? Yeah, so obviously my story is a little unique compared to a lot of folks um, who are teaching here. Um, I think in, in some ways my uh, background as first a non-Christian, I didn't become a Christian until I was 24 while I was playing pro football in Canada. Um, I think that actually had something to do probably with my, uh, with my current interests in, uh, in the intersection of theology, sociology, uh, especially relating to God's mission. Um, my field is, is missiology, and that's a, it's an interdisciplinary um, practice that, that really has sought to integrate different practices of theology, sociology, anthropology, different types of mission studies and other things together um, to study how God is at work in the world, right? And I think uh, being a non-Christian for so long, becoming a Christian in a, in a very secular context um, in, in the midst of pro- professional athletes, uh, most of my friends on the team at that time as I became a Christian were, uh, and especially the Christians on the team, a uh, high percentage were African-American or Samoan, um, some white Canadians, some white Americans, uh, so very diverse group. And I think that embedded an interest and a passion in me um, probably right away because my experience in church as I started to get involved with churches for the first time because I was not raised in church at all uh, was very different than my experience on my team, uh, right? My team, we had guys, like I said, black, white, Samoan, Canadian, American, uh, different backgrounds, worshiping together, doing Bible studies together, doing life together, uh, it was it was obviously a very different environment. Then when I started looking around for my first home church, and the churches that I was visiting were all primarily either they were all white, they were all black, um, they were very segregated, and I, I just couldn't make sense of that in light of what I was learning, what I was reading in Scripture, um, what I was being taught and discipled about the nature of the Christian faith, and so. I, I think I just started to, to reflect in some different ways. My first church that I joined was a multicultural church. When I, when I found that church, I walked in the doors and I, I thought, yes, this is what church is supposed to look like. We had 45 nations represented in that church, uh, white, black, uh, people from Canada, from the United States, from the, from the Caribbean islands, from Europe, from Africa, all over the world. And that just felt normal, right? Um, and so I think that's what probably launched me on my journey uh, that's brought me to where I am today, at least at least planted the seed. And there's been a lot of things along the way we can talk about if you want to. Yeah, yeah. It definitely reminds me of um, an experience I had at, at going to a church growing up. Um, I've said this on the podcast before, but I, was, I grew up as a missionary kid in Japan. And there's a church I would attend there called a Tokyo Baptist Church. And essentially it's the biggest international church in Tokyo And what was amazing about this church, since it attracted English-speaking people, was that it was full of people from, like, 70 different countries. And they literally had a diplomats club of about 20 20 or 30 diplomats that would come to this church. And they would have a a once-in-a-year banquet dinner where all these people from different countries would come together, have a dinner, 
and because of their common shared identity in Christ. And it's definitely amazing to see that happen in the body of Christ as it should. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's definitely that gives unique perspectives and experiences, right? Um, when when we grow up in primarily the culture we're raised in around people primarily like us, um, there's lots of value in that, right? It it helps you make sense of the world. It it shapes the way you view the world. It it gives you a culture that um, Sher- Sherwood Lingenfelter was one of my professors at Fuller, and he drew on a on a, one of the sort of classic anthropologists named Mary Douglas who had a saying that, that culture is our prison and our palace, mm-hmm. right? It's our, it's our palace because it helps us make meaning in the world. It makes, helps us make sense of the world, right? But it's also our prison because it basically uh, forms the way we view the world and locks us in and so that it makes it very difficult for us to um, understand and interpret experiences, values, practices that are different than our own, right? And so uh, we do the same thing in theology, our culture, whatever our background, locks us in, and we, we all see God through a box, right? And depending on our culture, that box may be shaped a little different or be a slightly different size, but it makes it very difficult for that box to ever expand to see the full picture of who God is, right? Which is why the value of intercultural theologizing is so important, mm-hmm. because different cultures are asking different questions, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, and every culture in the world reflects God's beauty and his creativity, but every culture in the world also is broken and marred by sin and is in need of redemption in some way. And the problem is when we're in our culture, we tend to be able to see where we think at least we can see where other cultures are broken and need to be redeemed, but we usually have a tough time seeing where our own might be. Right. right. Intercult- doing intercultural theology with others uh, is a way of helping to open those blinders a little bit so that we can start to see with better perspective both our own and others so that we can actually come to God with, a, with the right questions uh, that may be different than the assumptions, than informed by the assumptions I carry because of my cultural background. And that gives me a, a wider perspective, expands my box, and allows me to actually have a fuller experience not just of Christ but of the spiritual life. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think about how what Christ did in teaching to the disciples is he used analogies or parables, right? And in each of our different cultural contexts, we have different presuppositions and plausibility structures and understanding of society and how life functions that really provide analogies for understanding who God is. And definitely I've seen that difference, um, you know, in, in exploring different cultures and definitely cultural biases can really help – can blind us. Uh, to different understandings of picturing and imagining, understanding who God is. For sure, for sure. Yeah, that's um, that's one of the uh, that's one of those questions I have for God probably when I uh, when I when I meet Him uh, at the end times, right? Right, right. <laughs> is is uh, man, you know, why did you actually have to make all these different cultures? Why do we have? You know, it, it's created so many challenges, right? Um, but but that's the, that's the thing, right? Um, if we if we view culture as an obstacle. Uh, it's always going to be something to be overcome. It's always going to be something that has to be defeated, that has to have a strategy around, that has to something, right? If we view culture, though, instead as an actual opportunity because of the fact that actually God is a creative God who has created different people, different societies, different cultures, then we can actually have a different perspective, right? And this is, this is the value of doing or integrating, rather, sociology, anthropology, different different social science disciplines into our practice of theology, right? Or or what we call the, the larger field of missiology, mm-hmm. right? This is the value is because we can actually um, come with curiosity and humility to these other cultures to understand, hey, how is God at work in you already? Mm-hmm. Uh, what might God want to do in you? How is he at work in our culture and society? How is that similar? How is it different? And look at the ways that God is at work. What that does is expands our understanding of God, um, helps us realize that maybe the way he's at work in our culture isn't the way God is at work in every culture in the world, that maybe there are other ways that are not just necessary but beneficial depending on who we are and that they aren't necessarily bad just because I don't understand them, Mm -hmm. right? And so we want to come with that posture of humility and understanding so that um, we can ultimately get a fuller sense of what God might be inviting us into, uh, which actually makes life way more rich, right? Mm. And so, so I think that's the value, right, of, of engaging um, from a missiological perspective as, as an academic discipline, rather, right, uh, and, and ultimately informing our practice 
if we can engage from a missiological perspective, um, what that does is help us to move out of these boxes. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little later, but also can help give us different perspectives that can help us bridge some of the division that we see, mm. not just in the world, but in the church, especially yeah, yeah. these days. Yeah, that, I think that ties in really well to my next question um, for you. So from experience, you know, you have a vast experience working in professional football and church planning, leadership development, academia. From experience, what has been some of the greatest challenges for the American church when it comes to urban church planning and urban ministry today? Yeah, well, I, I think a big part of the problem uh, that we've faced is that we've tried historically, and when I say historically, I mean recent history over the last, say, 40 or 50 years especially, we have tried to apply, generally speaking, a, a, a suburban church planning model in urban centers. And we've then tried to figure out what's going wrong. Why doesn't this work? And what that's ultimately done for a lot of denominations over the last 30 or 40 years is encouraged uh, them to actually abandon the city, right? To abandon largely church planting in, uh, in city centers unless – that city center or that area or that neighborhood in the city is undergoing what a process that we would call in urban sociology gentrification, right? Why? Because suburban church planting models that are all basically informed for the most part by the church growth movement, right, uh, that, that really sprung up uh, especially in popularity in the later 70s and 80s in the fuller school of church growth, right, that was, that was going on at the time into the 90s. And informed, uh, you know, a lot of the f- more famous pastors and churches that that a lot of us in Christendom in the West know of, like say Bill Hybels, right at Willow Creek and their model, uh, purpose-driven life, purpose-driven church with Rick Warren at Saddleback, right? These are models that were developed out of this high-growth kind of purpose-driven, targeted um, church planting approach that was founded on or that, that is rooted in a, a principle from missiology called the HUP or the homogeneous unit principle, right? Basically, uh, the homogeneous, u- homogeneous unit principle says um, out of the work of Donald McGavran, right, in India, that people don't like to cross racial, cultural, ethnic, linguistic, or uh, religious barriers to hear and respond to the gospel, right, in its, in its essence. What C. Peter Wagner especially and, and some others in the Fuller School of Church Growth did in the 70s and 80s was say, hey, what if we can take this descriptive understanding of what McGavern is saying is going on here, right? Especially now understanding that McGavern was studying during his time in India as a missionary for, for decades and looking at how the gospel spread or did not spread among the Indian caste system, right? Which has some unique nuances, right? But this is where the, the HUP was developed. Fuller then basically took that approach and said, what if, what if instead of this being simply descriptive of some realities, what if we actually make this prescriptive and let it inform the way we do ministry, church planting, church growth, um, because, man, we could really see exponential growth in the church, right? If, and so what happened was this approach, like the, in a, for lack of a better term, we would just call targeting, right? That says um, that was that, that was made very popular in Rick Warren's purpose-driven church uh, model, and in the seminars and conferences that Willow sponsored for years, right? Uh, Willow Creek, if you've been to any of their conferences, they talk about um, you know the unchurched Harry and Mary, right? Um, Saddleback and the purpose-driven life, uh, what Rick Warren talks about is, is Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Sally. Well, what are they talking about? They're talking about who, is, who, is the, who are the people in your neighborhood most like you? Uh, what's, what is a common kind of description that we can come up with that says if we can figure out who the average person is in our, in our community, what most drives them and values them, we can design and target a church service and an entire ministry after going just after that person. And so you see in the purpose-driven uh, church, there's this picture of this yuppie wearing, a, you know, back at that time, because the book was in the early 90s, a holster on his side that has his cell phone and his beeper. He's got his chinos and his, you know, his little pull-down shirt for the yuppies in Orange County would wear. Um, and what Purpose Driven uh, Saddleback did and what, what Willow did here out in Barrington was say, all right, we're going to design a service that is seeker-targeted, that is going just after these people, right? And we're not going to worry about anybody else. We're just going to go after them. 
because these are the people we're most likely able to reach. Well, this is um, an expression of centuries of developing uh, American evangelical pragmatism, right? We just need to do what works uh, for the sake of the gospel. And so there was no ethical conflict for a lot of people to do this, right? Even though there was a ton of pushback that started to arise in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, especially from Central American theologians, uh, theologians of color from the United States, uh, people in Central America like Orlando Costas and others who were saying, wait a minute, you know, in here in the U.S., John Perkins and others who were, who were arguing that what you're doing is actually now reinforcing segregation, racism, et cetera, in America. And what we've seen over the years is that the evangelical church has, in fact, statistically uh, often reinforced segregation that over the years when Michael Emerson and Christian Smith did their study, what they revealed in their research was that the evangelical um, church in America was actually the most hyper-segregated institution in America, right, in their groundbreaking study in the early 2000s. And so historically, the church has said, well, you know what, that's not our concern. We're only concerned about the gospel. And all the gospel is, is making sure people understand that they've been forgiven through Jesus and they can get into heaven, right? A very reduced understanding of the gospel um, that has basically said, we don't worry about social concerns. We are not worried about all these things. They're actually a distraction. And so what's happened then over time is, is what you've seen um, is these pragmatic approaches, right, that work, that work very well to raise up kind of quick churches sometimes in high growth areas where people are moving in, right, especially the suburbs, right, and, and where people are all the same, um, yeah, we can maybe put up a little service or a church plant and we can put a model together that says, hey, you need to be this percentage funded after year one, this percentage self-sustaining and funded year two. By year three, we expect you to be fully funded, self-sustaining. You're going to do your thing. Give us your business plan, your planting plan, all of that so that we understand how things are going to go, right? Well, in, in the city, that doesn't work because in the city, you've got way more complex dynamics. You have besides everything else, uh, often in city areas, areas of poverty that, um, that ultimately say this church may or may not ever become self, fully self-sustaining, or if it does, it's going to take actually much longer, five to 10 years. The funding models, however, and the approaches were not designed for that. And so what would happen is people would keep coming in trying to plant multi-ethnic churches or urban churches or whatever in the city. The churches would never work long-term or, or rarely because at year three, the church isn't self-sustaining and funded. And so they would pull the plug and they'd pull the funding. And now the pastor, the planter is left trying to figure out how do we do this, often unable to do it. And so they shut down. Or it just kind of goes on in a different, smaller form that by American evangelical standards, right, isn't productive enough, isn't successful because... We've not met the benchmarks that we have set and that we use to, to measure success by, which often is numbers-driven. Mm -hmm. So it's created a challenge. Now, that's started to change over the last 10 years or so in some ways. But unfortunately, a lot of church planting organizations and denominations still take that approach and just don't understand what's going on unless, as I mentioned earlier, we find a neighborhood that is undergoing gentrification now we can follow in the, into that high growth area, boom, and, and apply the model that we're using. Why? Because these are people with wealth and resources and money, middle, upper, middle class, sometimes higher, coming in to bring resources into a neighborhood that didn't have any. And now the church actually can take root and may work after a few years, right, and be sustainable. The problem, of course, is everybody else then gets driven out. Right as the prices and the properties go up due to gentrification, long-term residents, they get pushed out either into other neighborhoods or into the suburbs. And then the churches often leave and follow their people where they go, right? This has been the model of American church for decades. Well, our people are leaving. Let's follow them instead of, hey, how do we actually impact and transform our community? Um, these people aren't like us anymore, right? So the easy solution by many has been to leave. So what you see are oftentimes in the city is a lot of smaller, under-resourced churches that are doing really valuable and important ministry but don't actually look like these models of success that have been lifted up by these uh, approaches that have been, been championed by denominational leaders and others, especially those who are involved in church planting. 
Yeah, this makes me think of the whole concept of the evangelical industrial complex Yeah, in terms of oftentimes that can happen to our ministries and our ministry imperative is that rather than being driven by gospel needs or addressing needs, what we can do is we can chase financial imperatives, right? So I've often seen in my experience here too at Moody is that many of the best talent go to the highest paying churches, right? Instead of going to the neighborhoods that need the most people, they'll go to the suburbs and the neighborhood that has the most financial incentive. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that per se. A lot of people grow up in these neighborhoods and this is the context that they know and they want to address. But it is it's shameful that the model we created doesn't address oftentimes or effectively address these really crucial needs that we can find in oftentimes these urban contexts. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, uh, the church in America just is just like the church in any other country that it's in, right? We, we love to think... And, and promote the fact that we're a distinct community, a distinct Christ-centered community. We're not holding to the values of the culture. Uh, depending on your posture, you know, we may need to even war against the culture, right? Um, we, we've got to keep the church pure and unstained. The, the fact of the matter is pretty much every denomination, every church movement throughout the world has some level of what missiologists would call syncretism, right? Um, we love to call out syncretism uh, for others, especially, you know, in other countries, right? But but it's very difficult for us to see it. What do we mean by that, right? Well, syncretism basically is the mixing of culture and religion, right? It's yeah. it's that blending together where where we would say, hey, this isn't actually uh, bibli- fully biblically faithful. What what we've got is a version here of a, of a, of a church that's uh, being influenced by the culture. Well, you know, <laughs> the, the that's that's obviously something we don't want to see, but it's unfortunately because of our broken, sinful nature, something that happens, whether we're aware of it or not, to some degree in every church. The the challenge with those with us in the West, and especially in the evangelical church, is is we have this arrogance about us, right? This sort of subtle arrogance as a movement that allows us to really see it. Um, in others and call it out, but but to really ignore it in our own and, and, and in fact, often deny it, right? And it's seen in a lot of times just the language we use, right? So what do we do? Well, we're, we're doing theology. Well, what are they doing in Africa? Well, they're doing African theology. Well, what are they doing in Central America? Well, they're doing Central American theology, or maybe they're doing liberation theology. Oh, right. Bad. Well, what are they doing in the, in, the, in the black church? Well, they're doing black theology or African-American theology or maybe liberation theology, right? Black liberation theology. So we've got all these names and labels that we love to apply to the way that people do theology around the world, except of course for our own, which is just theology mm-hmm. or theology proper, right? Like right. we're doing the correct theology. Why? Well, we've got the theology descended from the reformers and everything else. Over, and what we fail to realize is that our theology uh, was also developed in a context. All theology is contextual, right? Every theology arises in in a context. There is no such thing as doing theology in a vacuum. You can't do theology without being anchored and influenced in some way by your culture and your context, right? Everybody is. Yet we're often able to kind of hold blinders up to our own thinking. We're doing this right. Uh, if we could just get others to do it right, like we're doing it, then everything would be okay, mm-hmm. right? And so that has really radically, I think, influenced uh, the way we go about a lot of these things, right, is is that inability to to actually see how the culture is actually shaping our values as much and sometimes more than we like to admit, right, rather than our theology influencing our culture and our values. And so we see this all the time, especially in the, in the, in the American church with politics, Right, both sides scream at each other all the time, loving to point out how we're all being, you know, the other side's being influenced. But the fact of the matter is, both sides are pretty influenced by politics, right? And you've got a whole range of people in the middle, right, all over the place, right? And and so nobody's perfect, and I'm certainly not trying to make the claim I am either, right? Um, but I find it humorous that you know, as conservatives, we're often willing to really scream and yell at these radical liberal folks who are, you know, just being influenced by the devil and the culture and their politics and and unable to see how we're actually exactly the same way, right? Just from a different side of the spectrum. And that's what the challenge becomes, right? Mm-hmm. Is are these blind spots that that shape all of us because of our sinful nature. 
and the fact that we're all looking out after our own interests, whether we like to believe it or not, right, to some degree, right? So, yeah. I don't know why I started telling you that, so I'm just... Oh, <laughs> uh, you're good. You're good. Yeah. I sometimes talk myself, and I'm like, what? what? Why am I talking with this? I have no <laughs> idea anymore. Okay, I'll just wrap my story up. <laughs> no, I definitely, I definitely hear what you're saying, though. It's oftentimes, yeah, syncretism is a foreign concept, right? It's in a sense like, oh, we don't experience syncretism here. But it's like asking a fish, what is water? You can be swimming it so much that you don't even see your own culture. And that's something I've definitely experienced as well due to my experience growing up pretty much in between two cultures that are vastly different in terms of individualism and collectivism. And I see defaults. And oftentimes one of the greatest syncretistic things I see that I think is pretty clear in scripture that is unbiblical is individualism. Because I – my experience in Japan, I see how much people care for the collective. They care for their brother and their their neighbor. They think of their their neighbor or their collective first and oftentimes individualism, what it can become is just – it's obsessed with the self. And the imperative and the ethic we've developed is what can I do for my own self-fulfillment? What can I do to express and fulfill myself and my needs? Yeah, and the way we see it manifested in the United States oftentimes is in this – this rampant call that we in the evangelical church especially like to make about individual rights, mm-hmm. right? And we see this in the, in the political kind of debates that are going on today, right? And that we've taken this radical stance on individual rights. And the fact of the matter is that's more of an idea rooted in the American Constitution than it is in Scripture, right? Like I don't see this discussion and this right that we have to our rights being laced through the, throughout the Scriptures, Right? I see that in our, in our Constitution. And the problem is a lot of us actually don't see the distinction between the two. Mm. We have this unbelievable desire or belief that, you know, we're a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and we need to be a Christian nation for God, et cetera. And so what happens is everything becomes um, kind of Bible and we lose sense of what's actually Bible and what's not. What's our Constitution? Right, knowing that, well, the founding fathers actually, several of them were deists. They weren't actually, you know, evangelical Christian believers. They um, came up with a charter or bill of rights, so to speak, uh, that were driven very much by values uh, that that shaped them. Some inspired by a Judeo-Christian ethic, and others not so much. Right, but we've lost sight of that over the years. And it's made it very difficult to have conversations with Christians a lot of times because we often think we're um, adamantly defending the faith when really what we're defending is the Constitution or our rights to do what we want to do, right? And actually, I see a call in Scripture to do the opposite of that, uh, not to do what you want to do, but to actually pick up your cross and follow Christ daily. Yeah. So. Uh, I think it creates challenges. There, there, are, there are all forms of theology that we have that are very shaped by the American cultural ethos that we just don't recognize, right? Like this, this theology of prosperity that really underlies, and I don't mean the prosperity gospel, right, that we like to label, but just our theology of prosperity and our theology of comfort, right? Like, oh, God is so interested in me and my happiness and my fulfillment and my comfort. He'd never put me in a position to suffer, and if it's hard, then... God mustn't be in it. The devil's putting up a door and so, or a wall. So, you know, let's go somewhere else rather than actually persevere through difficulties knowing that it shapes our character, as James says in chapter 1, right? Uh, and so it makes it really hard because we have these subtle theological themes that shape us that we are convinced are biblical yet oftentimes are more rooted in our, in our cultural and political values and our history as a nation rooted in the Constitution than they are the Scriptures. Yeah, I think about this uh, term I recently heard. Instead of talking about the countries as foreign countries or third world countries, probably a more accurate way to really observe this is majority world countries in that, you know, half of the world lives on $2.50 a day. Half the world is pretty pretty much composed of Indians and Chinese people. And oftentimes we can become very narrow-minded in terms of what is the human experience? What is the average level of income and comfort and luxury? We here in the United States are composed of, composed about 3% of the world's population. We are, in a sense, the kings and queens of the world living on our posh beds, having the servants, you know, have the fans and fan us down. And we have plumbing and air conditioning. Um, and we become very arrogant. 
um, and developed this very narrow-minded perspective of what does the, what does life look like, and specifically, what does even the Christian life look like for many people in other third-world countries, or maybe we'll use the world developing countries. For them, what Christ doesn't provide is necessarily a guarantee of luxury comfort, but rather a security that their kingdom and their home is to come, and that this world is not their home, but rather their home is to be in Christ in the next life. Yeah, well, and I so I think I agree with you, um, but I think actually more than that, it also speaks to a way of being in this world for them, right? Just as yeah. much as it does us, yeah. right? But it, it it speaks for them to be able to be in the world in a very different way, yeah, right? And so there's a different orientation, there's a different approach to suffering, there's a different approach to having or being in need, mm-hmm. right? They're they're able to live much more fully into what. Paul says in Philippians 4, right, whether I have plenty or whether I'm in need, right, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, right? And so Paul finds this contentment, right, of whether he's in need or or whether he's, you know, got too much, right? And in in the two-thirds world, they're, they're, they're much more able to live into that reality of contentment even when they don't have much, whereas for us, it's much more difficult because we're used to having much. And when we lose anything, Right, because we have rights, and you know we deserve happiness and all these things. Right, um, it makes it hard, and so we will often then lose faith, blame God, uh, walk a little more arrogantly, etc. Now, here's the thing, though. Right, I, I don't want to. I know that a lot of people are going to be listening to your show here, um, and they're going to be thinking, "Wow, Hendrickson hates America. He's being bashed and blah blah blah." Right, it's not really what I'm trying to do. Um, I, I love. Where I live, uh, got lots of friends, uh, love this country. I'm a dual citizen here in Canada. Uh, I love both countries, spent half my life in both, um, and see lots of benefit and value to, to living in these countries, right? Uh, my point is, is, for, uh, is to raise awareness to the fact that we often, um, because of where we live, and it happens to everybody, right, we have these blind spots. And that we need to be more honest with ourselves, with the church, with our faith, if we're actually going to move into a more biblically faithful way of living uh, as Christ followers in this world. And that's where I believe, right, reflecting more intentionally and integrating practices uh, or disciplines such as sociology, right, anthropology, economics, and others can actually help us um, have a more faithful and robust theology because all theology is done in context, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Awareness of my context gives me more awareness of the accuracy and the robustness of my theology. If I don't understand my context, if I don't understand my culture, if I don't understand the values and views that have been shaping me, uh, I can't have a full, robust theology, right? There's more likely to be errors. There's more likely to be blind spots. There's more likely to be incompleteness, right? Whereas if I can actually get a better perspective, what I can see is how is my theology actually shaping my views in the culture, but how is my culture viewing my theology and the way I'm viewing God and the way he's at work in the world, right? And, 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 and now maybe I can see when there's these divided, polarized positions, why I hold to a particular view, why someone else holds to a very different view, why someone else holds to a view that seems to be different than both of those, and starting to understand or to ask questions, why do they have that view? Why do they have that view? Why do I have my view, right? And withholding judgment, right, just suspending my judgment to actually enter in deeper into conversation and analysis to say, Okay, are they asking different questions because they're in a different life circumstance? It may be right, may be wrong, it may be neither, right? It may just be different. What's going on just as I'm doing the same? And as I bring those things that are in tension together, I can now wrestle through with someone else who's asking those other questions, right? What's going on? What's God actually doing? What is he trying to teach us in this? Where is he trying to move us? Uh, Where might my views of God and how he's at work in the world be incomplete? Where might yours actually fill in some of those holes, right, and mine yours, right? And if I can have that perspective, that humility, right, that we're all called to have, right, Um, if we can have that humility now, um, 
I'm much more likely to be able to see um, the richness and the diversity of the ways that God is at work in his diverse people around the world, much more likely to actually have a position that I'm more comfortable in gray rather than the two polarized ends of, right, of black and white, right? I'm using those figuratively. Um, and and so, right, like, because this is the big challenge is because we often are so set in our cultural understandings of God that we have this need to be right because if my faith or my culture or something about my belief system is questioned, there's a fear that I have that maybe the whole thing is going to crumble. Maybe there's other holes, right? And if you're right and I'm wrong, what does that say about what I've been taught? What does it say about the people who've taught me? What does it say about my parents or my pastor? What does that say about my favorite Bible teacher at Moody, right? What does it say about whoever, right? And so I'm going to protect that. I don't want that to happen because I like safety, security, and things to make sense, right? And so I'm going to hold to my views, even if there are holes. I can kind of work around the holes. I can work around the faulty foundation because there's still other stuff holding it up. And maybe I can put a little patchwork in or a little post to hold up my faulty wall, right? But at some point, if the foundation isn't solid, it's going to crumble. And so this is, I think, where the value is and how it can actually help us move into addressing some of the challenges that we in the church are facing today. Yeah. I think that definitely also ties into many of the much of the deconstruction movement today. Oftentimes what happens, and I think I've seen this, yeah, in other people as well, is that culture, certain aspects of a culture can be tied into theology. And people see the flaws in this aspect of culture and then tie that into the whole bunch. And say, if this aspect of culture is wrong or is proven to be false, then that must mean the whole core of everything that I believe in is false. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, there's a reason why um, the biblical, the ethical command, fear not, do not fear, mm-hmm. is many, many say it's the most common or commonly used um, ethical imperative in Scripture besides love God, right? Others say, well, it's second, third, whatever. doesn't matter. <laughs> it's actually incredibly common, right? It is one of the most popular biblical themes all through Scripture. Don't fear. Why? Well, why? Well, because God knows we're fearful, right? We are captivated by fear in multiple areas of our lives. And so he knows. We need to be reminded and told over and over again, don't fear the Lord your God is with you. Yeah. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you till the end of the age. Like, I'm here, right? And so for us, the things that we're afraid of usually dictate the things that we do, the things we don't do, the things we'll entertain, the things we won't entertain, the things we'll, things we'll think about, the things we won't think about, right? The people we'll talk to, the people we won't talk to, the people we'll let in, the people there's no way you're getting in, right? Um, it's what's informed centuries and centuries and centuries of racism that continues to be an issue, right? It's it's what's informed centuries of ethnic bias between different places, nationalism and, and national biases and hatred, right? It's what informs wars and fears of what we have or what we don't have or what someone else is going to get or take away from us, right? All these different things are driven by fear, right, at some level. Now, there's other motivators. I don't want to oversimplify, but it's a big part of it, right? And so... You know, until we're able to come to grips with that and acknowledge that, we're going to continue to struggle with this thinking that we're right um, about whatever it is we're wrestling with, right? Um, And we're going to go on polarized because we're going to continue to be afraid of having our views and our beliefs challenged, right? Whereas um, what I've discovered over the last 20 or 30 years of my Christian life, I've been a Christian now for uh, almost – man, I'm old – what is it? Yeah, probably almost, uh, almost coming on 30 years. And one of the things that I've continued to learn more and more, I'm still not all the way there yet, but, but, uh, but what I've learned is that the more I can press in and allow um, those fears to actually uh, draw attention to something that's going on in me yeah. about my beliefs, about my values, about what I, you know, et cetera, the more God is able to address them and deal with them, mm-hmm. the more he's able to heal me, right? But the more he's also able to um, 
do in me and help me to learn, right? And so trying to suspend my judgments or fear arises to simply not react but to sit back and say, what's going on? All right, what, what am I afraid of? What am I worried about here? Why is what this person is saying so infuriating to me? Why is this causing this emotional reaction, right, this angst, whatever, whatever I'm feeling? What, what, why is this happening? And allow myself to sit in it rather than, boom, just automatically get into a debate. The young me, automatic debate. Right, And those who know me would say, well, you still debate all the time, which is true, right? Uh, but I tend to debate from a different posture now, right? My posture now, which is coming from sort of years of reflective work theologically and missiologically, I'm not always right, but my posture is less driven now by fear as it is a desire to actually engage in deep probing questions with one another to kind of say, well, look, if you can poke a hole in my argument, go for it, Right? That gives me an opportunity to reflect and to grow, right? Or at least to reevaluate my perspective and have a deeper, more solid belief in it as I evaluate and say, you know what? Great point. Never thought about it. But as I've reflected now, I still don't agree and here's why, <laughs> right? But it, it allows me to come to a more fuller and more robust kind of perspective. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the posture I try to take now, right, um, is, is to – I'm still going to debate. I'm still going to debate vigorously, but I'm going to do it with an open mind and always come after the fact with reflection to kind of say, all right, was there something going on there? Uh, a little tweak of, you know, anger or whatever it was. What, what's going, you know, what, what's going on so that I can hopefully have a posture of openness, humility, uh, and learning a charitable spirit rather, I guess is the way to say it, with those that I disagree with, Right which helps me get along with a pretty wide variety of people. I mean, if you look at my – I haven't been on Facebook for about a year. I got, kind of got tired of the garbage that was um, kind of going on there and myself getting in endless debates trying to convince people of certain things. Um, and so I've been off for about a year. But if you look at my Facebook, Facebook thread, I've got a, well over a couple thousand friends. And you will see folks who are um, secular atheists, raging liberals on the left to staunch conservative fundamentalists on the right and everybody in between because I've lived in 13 different cities. I've lived in many different spheres of life. I've ministered to and with many different people and both in the church, outside of the church. Uh, and I value those friendships, right? Um, and everybody has something that I can learn from, whether you share my beliefs or not. Uh, and I enjoy the dialogue because it keeps me sharp, but it also allows me to continue to grow. Right, and so I've tried to do that, and and I believe that my my commitment to trying to integrate and understand culture, uh, right, society, um, with my theology has helped me to do that in a way that's more helpful from for me. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, this Anglican quote or motto. It says, "An essential is unity, a non-essential is diversity. In all things, charity." Yeah. And so it sounds like what I'm gathering from you is that from this division that we see. In the, in the church today in America, what we need is charity. We need love and compassion for our brothers and sisters and for those who aren't of Christ as well, to be able to listen well, uh, be able to understand their perspective well and where they're coming from, um, and oftentimes just imposing dogmatism right away without really having a careful ear to say, like, what are you saying? What's your context? Where are you coming from? can oftentimes do more damage than harm and really help to – well, yeah, people won't think we're actually listening. And that in order – true communication requires a back and forth. It requires feedback, understanding the context of the people. And without that, we can't really truly communicate the gospel and what he's come to do. Well, that's right because here's the thing, right? Um, one of the sayings that's really popular in conservative circles is we just need the gospel, right? And I was like, well, sure, true, but what does that actually mean? That's just an abstract thought, right? If it doesn't land in real life, it's not gospel. Right. Gospel is what? It's good news. Well, to be good news, it has to be something that I need, that I want. Even if I don't initially, at some point I've got to see it as good news, right? This is good news for my life. Now, whatever aspect of that message is good news may be different for you and it may be different for me, right? And that's why we have these individual unique testimonies of people, how they came to faith. Some, it's around this idea of lacking purpose. Some, it's this incredible guilt or shame they're carrying. For others, it's this boredom. For others, it's this, this religious fundamentalist kind of legalist zealot who was raised in church but who never really understood relationship, right? And it's different for all of us, right? But the, the thing that's true for all of us is that if the gospel doesn't land 
It's just a thought. It's just an abstract theological conception that I can talk about with other people. This is what integrating theology with sociology, anthropology, and other practices does for us, right? Think of what Paul does when he is in Athens and he's at the Areopagus, right? This is, this is to me, the essence or the prototype or, or at least an archetype of, of somebody who was able to, to theologize but also to do culture learning, right? And as he's uh, in his own self a Pharisee but a Hellenistic Pharisee, right, raised in Tarsus, right, he's able to understand both the Jewish culture and the Hellenistic, different Hellenistic cultures around. And as he gets into Athens and he's walking around, he says, hey, I've been walking around, people, seeing all these statues to these gods, and I even see this one, this unknown god. Well, let me tell you about this, right? And as he does so, he's drawing on the uh, the Greek philosophers of the time, right? And he's, he's, he's engaging them in their turf with their language in their conversation. Why and how? Because he understands it. He can speak their language because he spent time studying their language. He spent time with relationships with people. He knows actually very much about what's going on. And even though many reject it as, as they will, there are people who, it says, receive the message, right, at that time. Why? Because Paul was able to speak directly into their circumstances, into their philosophies, using their philosophies, and making the gospel good news for them. That's in its essence what sociology, anthropology, and other culture studies can do for us, right, is what's good news for you? Right? All good evangelism begins with listening, right? Yeah. And listening has many different forms, right? Listening to you in a conversation. So I see what's going on with you. Why? Why am I listening? Because well, I want to see where God is already at work in you so that I can join, right? When I come with this idea, that it's just the gospel for everybody, and I just say the same thing over and over. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a modernity-driven model that says all you need is the four spiritual laws, for example, right? And I'll just give you these four spiritual laws, and, you know, if you reject it, it's because you're not ready. And I'm like, well, maybe. <laughs> or maybe the way you've packaged the gospel isn't actually good news to me, right? And, and what good is this going to do, right? Um, um, Booth, the, the founder of the Salvation Army, had a saying, right? Had a famous saying that I love. Um, he, he says, the hungry man can't hear the gospel over the sound of the rumblings in his own stomach, right? And, and, and because of this and because of this conviction, he, he launched the Salvation Army in England back in the, you know, the late 1800s. Well, what, what was he saying? He's like, yeah, great. He said, hearing words of of, of, of gospel is great, but the problem is the pressing urgent needs of the moment for the man who's starving, right? The woman who's starving, the child who's starving, uh, they're not going to hear those words. But if you feed them, right, in this case what he's talking about, they might then be able to hear. Because now they actually not just have the rumblings quieted, but they're seeing that there is a need being met in their lives. And the gospel now takes tangible form and becomes good news to them, right? Jesus basically says as much in Luke 4 when he quotes out of Isaiah, out of this passage from, 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 that extends all the way from at least chapter 58 all the way through the early 60s, right, that's very focused on how Israel is mistreating and oppressing its people, its workers, right, not caring for the hungry, the widow, the orphan, right? And Jesus draws right out of that passage to announce his, right, messianic mission and identity, in Luke 4, right? And what does he say, right? It's good news for the poor. The oppressed are set free. Good news is proclaimed, right? He's, it's not just these words he says, but it's the things he does. And then we see in Luke this practical gospel lived out through Jesus' life and ministry where tangible needs are being met, right? This is what the gospel is. It is good news to me and my circumstances. Right? Now, that's not to be confused with what many people fear as liberation theology or some kind of prosperity gospel or anything else. What it is is saying God cares about individuals, families, groups, societies where they're at and wants to meet them where they're at and has sent a Messiah to suffer with them where they're at, where we're at, right, so that – we can experience 
him in the midst of that. And so how do we actually frame that for people? Well, we can only frame that for people if we understand people. If we're not willing to listen to people and understand them, we're never going to be able to do that beyond some simple things that may see a person here or there get saved. Great. I'm not minimizing that, right? It's important when anybody becomes in, comes into a life-giving relationship with Christ. But how much more powerful would it be if I took the time to listen and learn enough about a group of people to see dozens of them give their lives to Christ, to see their entire society transformed because of what God was wanting to do in and through me? I can't do that if I'm not willing to listen and learn. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really a great summary overall of what we talked about that what a biblically and theologically informed missiology looks like today is meeting people where they're at, helping to address their needs and understand their context so that we can meet them where they're at with the gospel overall. And Dr. Hendrickson, as we wrap up our time, I just want to go to our final question that we've been asking every professor here. What is one book that you think every person should read today? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> that would have been man. Depends what what the, what you're concerned about. My my thing is, what are you? Uh, well, where are you at? Right? What's important to you? I think an important book that would help a lot of Christians wrestling through one of the big controversies right now that relates to justice, racism, and all of the things going on in the church and the debate over critical race theory and all all of the what I would just call garbage that's going on right now. It's all a bunch of noise. Would be a book by Ken Witzman called The Myth of Equality, which uh, lays out um, a really good case of trying to integrate theological thinking with um, issues in the practice of justice. And he wrestles with this issue that is causing a lot of people a lot of frustration, right? That term of white privilege. What is that, right? And he tries to address that and he tries to engage in it theologically. But he also draws in what we're talking about, sociology, anthropology, to wrestle with some of the issues that are going on in our conversations right now. So I think that would be a valuable, a valuable read for a lot of people to gain some different perspectives on uh, from what they've actually been been hearing, listening, and taught uh, for, for a great part of their lives in the church. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hendrickson, for your time. Dr. Hendrickson here teaches at the Moody Bible Institute, so if you are some, a prospective student um, looking to study here at Moody, you could study under him. So, Dr. Hendrickson, thank you so much for coming on the show, and we hope you have a good day. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moody Profcast. The Moody Profcast is a production hosted, produced, and edited by Jonas Swenson in partnership with the professors of the Moody Bible Institute. Graphics are by Aaron Goodfellow. The music featured is the song Autumn 2011 by Locksbeats. We'd also like to thank Moody Radio and the Moody Communications Department for letting us use their facilities for this production. Tune in again to the Moody Profcast to learn more about how theology intersects with our culture.